Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode number eight of the NYC Real Estate Podcast. I'm Mark Levine. I'm your host, and we are excited to be talking today with Justin Weiser, an attorney with William A. Slutsky, PC, based out of Forest Hills. And I just want to say, hey. Hey, how are you? I'm good. Welcome. So this is our eighth episode. Um, Before we get into you, let me just tell everybody that if they want to send a note to the show, they can do so at nycrealestatepodcast at gmail.com. And we've been starting to get emails and we start to answer these questions as well. But today we kind of wanted to walk through with Justin um, some various issues with relations to projects that go on in certain buildings. And before we do that, let me give you an opportunity for you to kind of give your uh, history, your background, how you got into law or real estate law in, in general, just anything you want everybody to know. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on the podcast. This is my first time on any podcast. <laughs> the intro music was great. <laughs> and we aim to please on that. Did you did you do it yourself? Oh yeah, no. No, definitely not. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, in any event, I've been an attorney. I've been practicing for a little over twelve years. I started off in the in the big firm world and I've progressively gotten smaller as I realized that I wanted to help real people, but also be able to do sophisticated uh, business and real estate transactions. So right now, I work for a law firm, uh, Bill Slutsky and I, the law firm is called uh, William A. Slutsky PC. We have another attorney, we've got uh, paralegals and file clerks, and we do a couple of things. From this perspective, we have a big practice where we represent approximately about 50 condominium and co-op buildings as general counsel. Mm -hmm. And as general counsel, we uh, it's it's our job really to navigate the legal issues that come up for for buildings. And so, when it comes to those sorts of issues, there are a couple of different buckets. There's shareholder disputes and litigation types of issues. There are uh, transactional issues. There are labor and employment issues. And we're really at the helm directing the boards and the management companies about how to navigate those issues. And I say what really sets us apart is that we're really transactionally transactionally based. And there's a lot of firms who do general counsel work who are litigators by their nature. And don't get me wrong, there are a ton of disputes that come up in co-op buildings, but we like to look at things as if we were sitting on the board and if we're sitting on the board, we are looking at ways to not just protect the co-op or protect the condominium, but also cost-effective things. What are the ways that you can invest time up front so that you don't have headaches or problems later? And the two most important commodities that generally come up with all legal transactions and issues are time and money. Right. Headaches fall in there too. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so we try to, to look at ways that we can solve problems before you have a legal bill that gets run up over the course of litigation, which can be very, very costly. Yeah. And sometimes owners or boards tend to, um, look the other, well, they're not so happy to upfront spend money on a contract with, let's say we're doing, and we could talk about different types of projects, but let's pick a facade project for, let's pick that topic as the narrow for today's topic where we can figure like suppose that we're doing a facade project and then we can walk through the different like aspects of that contract but if we put in the work before the contract is actually signed executed we make sure that all of our riders are in place 
we account for everything. We can hopefully save much more than that in time, energy, and ha- heartache and headache down the line if something should go wrong. You bet. And I'll, I'll just add one other thing. We'll, we'll keep the, the conversation to the the realm of a facade project. But there's also plenty of smaller projects, especially in smaller buildings, that come up all the time. Everything from um, lobby from lobby renovations or um, smaller uh, pool maintenance contracts and things like that, where you can solve a problem with a short form contract because you're not going to do a full blown giant AIA contract on a twenty five thousand dollar job. Right. But you'd be surprised at how you can put together a simple short-form four-page contract that just lets everybody know that they're on the same page. Because it's never just one thing that goes wrong. It's typically a number of things that go wrong, and then people go back and look at what you agreed to. And if you don't have something that's coherent and makes sense, now you're looking at litigators interpreting it, you're looking at courts interpreting it, and that's where the mess occurs. Right. And that's where your expertise comes in because you've seen it before. Correct. You've seen it go the right way and you've seen it certainly go the wrong way. So you can kind of lead the client through um, the best way to uh, make these paragraphs up, make sure that everybody's protected. And protection goes both ways. Like the contractor is going to look for protection on their own side. The owner or the board is going to look for it on their side. So everybody has to kind of come and meet, you know, meeting of the minds have to meet in the middle. A hundred, a hundred percent. And we were talking just before this, before we started, started taping, even if you have everything a hundred percent buttoned up in a contract, the way that you want it, at the end of the day, you may have a situation where you've got every single right in the world, but now you've got, you're faced with a business issue, Mm -hmm. which is I can get out of this contract and that's great. My lawyer did a, a wonderful job, but all of a sudden, if I'm going to get out, it's going to cost me a lot more money. Right. And so then you're you're left with, well, what are our business options? It's your and sunken costs fallacy, I guess that's uh, called, you know, or is it worth going through mm-hmm. knowing how much money we've spent and, mm-hmm. and going through that? Which, which is why it's it's so important to do your diligence up front right. to make sure that... The well, vend- let's talk yeah, about that. You bet. That's, you a, bet. that's a good you point. Bet. So you bring up um, due diligence. I think that vendor selection... Um, we talked um, separately about this, but I think the vendor selection is probably the the most important point that we're going to hit in selecting a successful project. And how do we go through and vet these vendors to make sure that they've done work before, that's of this type, that's of this size, they give references, and we can maybe see... I think references would be good to go and call the references. But if we're talking about a large scale job, it might also make sense for somebody from the building or from the ownership side to actually go see the work, not just talk to the people that um, are giving a reference. Because if you're giving a reference, it's the same thing when I go for a, a pitch for the management side. Look, we're not giving you bad references. Whoever we, we give, we know that they're going to say something positive. And that may not have anything on the work side to do with the actual work. It's just it could be just a relationship that's positive. So I think that it's going to be helpful for doing a, a boiler. If it's going to be helpful for doing an elevator upgrade. We're doing a facade job. Actually going and this is the one thing that you can see. You know, you when somebody does computer work for you, you really can't see it. But when we're doing buildings um, and we have structures and we have physical property, I think that it would mean a lot for 
us to go the extra step to actually go to those buildings and, and see the product, see how it worked with each other. Are there any existing issues that they're having? Um, I think that's a great point because I think about even in, in my own house, when I purchased my house, we renovated a kitchen, we did a bunch of other smaller projects in the house, we put in new floors, et cetera, et cetera, and we interviewed four contractors. And the reason that you need to do that is because there's going to be someone who's going to give you an estimate that's way high, yeah. and then there's going to be someone who gives you an estimate that's way low, and then you're also telling yourself, well, what is this guy's work product like? Let me see it. Let me let me see examples of other things that you've done. And it's a lot easier to understand exactly what you said when you're thinking about it for a product that you're buying. Yeah. Okay. You see your friend has a has a great new television right. and you know that the TV is good. And then maybe you go out to PC Richards, maybe you go out to Best Buy and you price it, maybe you go online. But at least you've seen the picture, you've seen the product, yeah. you've sat in his living room and you know how it works. Yeah. You do the same thing with, with and in your of case products. of the kitchen, you want to go to somebody else's kitchen that this guy did because you may not like the way that the cabinets lined up and they didn't fix it afterwards. You know, it's the little things that matter because mm -hmm. I from practical experience, my my sister just did her kitchen over. And I know one of the things that irked her at the end was that the cabinets were not lined up the right way. And, you know, they weren't they weren't closing the right way. But. Again, is it worth the hassle to call in somebody? It should have been fixed, you know, in, at the end with the checklist, but it was kind of just left there. And would I recommend that person? Maybe, maybe not. But it's the little things, and it's we can go to the uh, to the building, and we could see on the local law eleven or the facade project. Sometimes you look at a building, and I'll walk by and I see that they are just done work, maybe in the past year or two, and it looks like a patchwork of um, you know color on the pointing. That to me that's a very specific example, but that to me is either the architect or the contractor failed to match the existing pointing. So now you look like you have an entirely, you know, quilt, you know, you have mm -hmm. a new quilt of pointing, uh, everywhere. The mortar just doesn't match and it, it looks not professionally done. And then you go to others, um, where more artisan work where they're matching the color, they're matching the type and you can say, okay, they actually had a different mindset for the repair. It wasn't just the repair itself, but it was also the overall um, look of the building. So there's so many different avenues you can go with comparing and contrasting. You know, it's what a good you're looking point. For. It's also a really good point too, because especially when you get into buildings where the apartments go for a lot higher value, mm -hmm. maybe in in um, lesser expensive buildings shareholders may not care as much. It's not to say that they wouldn't care, but but in a building where you've got very high-priced apartments, very sophisticated boards who have very sophisticated types of jobs, very sharp and intelligent people, they're going to notice those things and they're going to have that eye. They're going to care about that in ways that maybe others wouldn't. So that's a really important part of just looking to make sure that things look right. So we, we've gone through the vendor selection. I think every, every project has its own pain points. We want to see um, how does a contractor for this type of project handle this? How do they do this? It's going to be different for the facade to the boiler to the elevator to plumbing. You know, mm -hmm. It could also be a $20,000 job. It could be a million-dollar job. So there's different ways of going to the vendor. Um, in terms of before we get to the signed contract, 
what are your recommendations to how the building can, and, and this is like such a general, I mean, each one is different. This is just for people listening that are entertaining, doing work, but what are the, the general things that we could look at to make sure that the building is protected? Okay. So what I'll do is I'll basically take you through my general process of, of how I, I work when one of these jobs come in, I've represent a building and, all of a sudden they're doing a local law 11 job, which just so that everyone out there in the podcast world knows local law 11, it's a, it's a statute that's particular to New York city, which basically says that if a building is uh, six stories or higher then every, um, every five years you have to make sure in the shortest way of saying it, that a brick isn't going to fall off the side of the building. No unsafe conditions. A hundred percent and, and hit somebody who's walking on the sidewalk. Yeah. So these are some of the most expensive projects that a building can do because you have to hire engineers. They have to go and do the inspection to make sure that there aren't parts of the facade of the building that are falling off. And then there are, there's more than just brick. As, as you mentioned, there's, yeah. l- there's lintels, there's the, the, the grout in between. There's all these technical specifications. Right. Now railings and fire escapes too. A hundred percent. And yep. then there's even there are new rules that came out with railings and fire escapes yep. and balcony enclosures and yep. things like that. These laws are, are fluid and they're constantly changing. And we are going to do, just as a side note, a whole episode on Local Law 11 probably within the next uh, month or so. So oh. that's something for people to look at too. Or if you're listening in the future, just go search it out. Well, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm <laughs> gonna to put that on my calendar <laughs> and bookmark it now. I'll text you. Okay, yeah. that's awesome. So... My general process as an attorney, and I was mentioning this before, if you look at this whole process as almost as a game, uh, as a sporting event, the uh, the management company, the management company, the board are really, and, and the contractors, the offense, the architect is really the defense and the midfield, and the attorney is the goalie. So it's our job to make sure that nothing's nothing's getting passed mm-hmm. and to make sure that we're not having problems during the job or problems that are going to arise after the job. So what are those types of problems? They're claims. They are lawsuits. They are disputes with the contractors. And also making sure that what the parties agree to gets put into the documents. And those are general, generally broad types of things that cause problems in any legal situation, whether you have a contract for a facade contract or whether you are hiring somebody for a, for a CFO position and you have a, a, a scope of, of employment of what you want him to do, and then that's completely different. So the important thing in any legal context is to make sure that you have a meeting of the minds and to make sure that what everyone agreed to gets put on the paper. So the things that we're going to do is we're going to look at the bid. We're going to look at if there are any plans and specifications, including drawings. Mm-hmm. I actually like to look at the big blown up drawings so I can see where the work is being done and understand what the scope of the project is. And we recommend, if it's a, especially if it's a project that's significant and... It, it could be mildly significant. I mean, we were talking about lobby renovations. That's on the that that's not necessarily on the smaller scale because we've seen six figure lobby renovations mm-hmm. too. 
I think if we're talking about just painting, that's one thing. But for the large scale projects, I think having an expert in there, which you said, you know, the bid specifications that comes to you as part of the package once a vendor has been chosen is going to be super important to have everything laid out on an apples to apples comparison. Because when we're hiring an architect, they're they're looking at, let's say, the facade job. We're looking at 11 or similar. They're looking at um, unit prices that are going to be important for the future because it's not just so much how much am I paying now for this upfront project, but if any change order should come through, this is the per lintel price. This is their linear mm-hmm. foot price. This is the, um, you know, anything that you could quantify as a unit price that's going to be put into the future contract. So where it might be, you know, some some contractors we know from working with them are more likely to try to put change orders on the on the plate. So they may come in cheaper on the front side and then try to make it up on the back side when they find, oh, I'm not maybe as profitable as I should be on this project. And, um, you know, it's each each and this goes back into what we were just talking about, about um, qualifying a vendor. Like knowing the history of the vendors is very important. Um, having the bid specifications to send to you is equally as important. Mm-hmm. And you would you would imagine that most of these contractors, if they're going to be working with EBMG, or they're going to be working with one of the bigger managing agents in the city. And EBMG is my property management company, just because okay. I, I didn't say that oh. up front. No, which is fine. Okay. Yeah, sure. I just didn't mention it. So, yeah, but okay. we manage about 100 buildings. So it w- hopefully there's a, we've dealt with a lot of, you know, contractors. Well, so the general thought process, at least initially speaking, is that these contractors are have a vested interest in doing a good job. Mm-hmm. Why? Because... If they're going to do a good job with a management company that manages 100 buildings or 200 buildings yeah. or 500 buildings, they're going to want work in the future. Yeah. It's, so it's work at scale. A hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent. And so if, if they can do one project right or if they do conversely one project wrong, they're never going to see any business right. again. So it's a high stakes project when it's your first project with a new company. Mm-hmm. And that's the same with me when I, let's say, I have an owner of. Uh, you know, uh, they have a real estate portfolio and they're like, here, try one building and let's see how it goes. It's the exact same thing. I think it's a good point. I mean, it's a good point for any business person out yeah. there. Your, your first, your first look is really important. You've yeah. got to show up and, and all hands on deck. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. So we're going to go through that bid. We're going to go through the drawings. I'm going to have conversations with the architect to understand exactly, uh, the price so uh, some of the things you mentioned, the price per square foot, the different prices per square foot. I was actually just looking at a roof contract this morning and the price per square foot didn't add up to the to one of the line items in the bid. Right. It was a couple of hundred dollars off. It wasn't that big of a deal, but it put a question in my mind of why is, does it say that the price per square foot is $30 a square foot? Yeah. And then when I look at the number of square feet... And the price that you're charging me, we're off in the dollars. Yeah. It could be an error. It, it could be a bigger error that said, well, it, it, that was wrong and that was wrong. It wasn't just one thing being wrong. And now all of a sudden things change. Yeah. So making sure that, that what everyone agreed to from a price perspective gets written in there. Mm-hmm. And then with price, it comes down to how are you paying that, right? Are you paying... 
Are you paying? Uh, typically, you're going to put a, a fair amount as an initial deposit right. because the contractors need money to mobilize their jobs. Yeah, which is a lot of the time for some of these smaller projects too. You say, "Oh my God, it's so much!" But if you need like sidewalk shed and you need scaffolding, most of the project could be in the mobilization, where not so much is in the labor and the materials. So you have to, I guess, we have to also quantify what percentage of that is, you know, for the mobilization, what percentage is for the actual work. Right. And, and it actually leads us into a, a, a great conversation. I just had a situation recently where building was going under a refinancing and they were starting a job uh, and they didn't have the money to pay. Mm-hmm. And, and so all of a sudden we get right towards signing the contract and I talked to the CFO and he said, well, we don't have, we don't have the money. So, well, the property manager never ended up having that conversation. Now we, we solved it and we gave a smaller, a smaller amount up front, but all of a sudden it put a question in the contractor's mind right? as to, well, obviously they wanted the business. They're withholding information from us. Are they not going to pay us in the future? We have conversations sometimes with contractors where they know that the building doesn't have the funds today, but we anticipate the refinance in a short period of time. Can you float, can the contractor float the building over a period of time, either at no interest or low interest? Because obviously they have bills to pay. So if they're on credit, they're being charged interest as well. Um, So I think being as open and honest as possible with the contractor and with the ownership in the beginning is going to alleviate any of these bad tension issues that you may have. Because all of a sudden the contractor's three payment requisitions in and they're like, okay, where's my money? You know, oh, we don't have the money yet. We're refinancing in two months. Well, you didn't tell us this in the beginning and now we're going to stop work and we'll wait until you have the money. And mm-hmm. then everybody is left in the in the cold. Right. And so, so let's translate that into how that can play out into a, a problematic situation. So in the case of a local law 11, you actually have to have guys out there on scaffolding. Scaffolding also adds another element from mm-hmm. a cost perspective yeah. and an insurance perspective, especially when you have a building uh, that's several, more than more than a couple of stories. Yeah. But there's only a certain amount of time during the year that guys can be up on the side of the building. Right. So you've got really a limited amount of time that you can start the work. And remember, it takes time, as you said, to mobilize and to get permits mm-hmm. from the New York City Department of Buildings. So... You may sign a contract, let's say you signed it in, in June, then you got to wait another month before you could even start. Yeah. So if that gets pushed off because you've got money problems or because people aren't paying attention to things and then all of a sudden everyone wants to go, 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 that's where stuff, yeah. can, you, you can run into problems. Why? you're running into extra costs too. 100%, yeah, because yeah, now all of a sudden it gets, you, you, you push off the job, a job is going to take 120 days and now you're into December and now you've got a cold winter. Yeah. And now guys can't go up on there. And you've, you've got to have the scaffolding for a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. Which and I think it renews on 29-day, I think, 29-day intervals. So mm-hmm. every month that you're sitting out there, you are paying extra, extra thousands of dollars for that scaffold uh, rental. And so now you've got a weather problem. Mm-hmm. And not even saying, and beyond the weather problem and the scaffolding problem, if you have open areas of the building in the winter, now you're, you're causing a deterioration potentially on the exterior. So 
your scope of work may be also changing because there are new issues going to be opening up during the freeze thaw cycles of the winter. A hundred percent. Weather, weather, mother nature can be your worst nightmare. Yeah. Water, water freezes, it expands. And now you've got other construction issues that, that can come up. Additionally, it's not unfathomable to think about the situation where you've got scaffolding up, you've got ice, you have water, you have ice, you have a slippery condition. Someone's trying to cut corners, get a job done, and God forbid somebody falls off. Now you're into an insurance issue, you're into a claim, and then you've got to go back to make sure that the insurance that you got from the contractor was not a Swiss cheese policy. Right. Okay, so so that's why doing the work ahead of time, doing the work up front, asking these questions, and you know, we were just talking about some basic things, yep. timing, price, uh, scope of work, and making sure that all that gets annexed to the contract, but having the actual conversations is important because then all of a sudden other stuff comes up, right? So you're talking about the money and the price and when you're going to pay. And then you get to the point where you say, oh, well, we don't have the money until we do the refi. Right. No one was anticipating that until you actually have the conversation. Yeah. And so then you, you go from there and sometimes you got to back into things or, or you, you've got to have, you got to have workarounds, but you can see that if you're not doing the analysis ahead of time, it's, it's not too hard to see how you could run into a lot of problems later. Problems and ill will. And ill will, right. And think about, think about the boards, right? Uh, being on a board, unfortunately, is often a very thankless job. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of responsibility. Everyone who sits on the board, they have jo- other jobs, real, real jobs where they get paid, families, their regular lives. And then they've got another hundred people in a building who are complaining to them about everything from hot water to neighbors to smoke. And then they're going to come into you about this. Right. It's just, it's, it's another thing that you, that you have to deal with. So all of a sudden it, that person, whether it's a board president or anyone else, depending upon the day, he's got all these other issues. And then who is he going to come to? He's going to come to the attorney. He's going to come to the management company. Yeah. Really, he's going to go to the management company first. So, in instances. so in the contract negotiation, you're looking at the insurance policy information. You're looking at the bid specification to make sure that everything matches up. You like to look at the drawings to get a sense of the actual work that they have done. Um, we're obviously making sure that all permits are going to be filed for um, riders. Well, uh, explain the AIA contract versus a put together contract when it makes sense to have an AIA, when it makes sense to have riders in an AIA. Just can you walk us through like a, a little process of that just to, so that we know when is it appropriate to use an AIA and when do we not need to use it? Sure. So. Before that, with regard to the insurance, I always feel like a lawyer, especially lawyers for, for co-op projects, we're really kings of nothing and jacks of all trades. Okay, <laughs> So the reason is, is because you have to have enough knowledge to understand how you can flag the issues. So a good lawyer, whether it's a lawyer for a co-op or anything else, I, I always compare it to the movie The Matrix. Mm-hmm. He's in The Matrix everything is moving super fast, but to Keanu Reeves and his cronies, everything is coming in really slow. In the same way, way, if you're Pete Alonso, 
behind the plate, right. th- that 95 mile an hour fastball is looking more like 60. And if it's me behind the plate, that 95 <laughs> mile an hour fastball is looking like it's 500 miles an hour. I already hour. ran away to the dugout. <laughs> <laughs> so, so from an insurance perspective, there, there are going to be minimum types of coverages that you're looking for. Uh, there are going to be endorsements to the policy. There are going to be certain things that you want to have questions ahead of time. And I'm not an insurance expert, but what I know is that I have to have a conversation with the insurance agent for the building. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be the experts. And I can't tell you how many times where the the job has been bid on, a contract is out, and the insurance was never vetted. So how do you run into a problem? Well, you've got a 10-story building, and the contractor only has insurance to go up to three stories. Mm. Or they have an exclusion for employer liability. So if the, the guy falls off a scaffolding, he can't go against his employer, and then he's got to seek insurance from the building. Mm. subrogate to the building's policy. Mm-hmm. And how does that run into a problem for a building? Well, now the building is on the hook for the claim. They submit a claim. The insurance company has to pay. And you're either going to be dropped from coverage or your rates are going to go sky high. Right. I'm sure there's there's somewhere ground in between. Yeah. But uh, again, it's why you have to make sure that that's vetted a- ahead of time. And that's really important. I'm looking at it and making sure that that gets to the insurance person. And a lot of times it does. You have a good managing agent. They're doing that. Mm-hmm. But there are times when that doesn't happen. So that's why the attorney is the goalie. Right. It'll be the backstop and make sure that all the T's, all are, the crossed. T's are crossed and the, and, the dot, and the I's are dotted. <laughs> so getting back to your question about an AIA contract versus a non-AIA contract. Mm-hmm. Okay. Generally speaking, Bigger scopes of jobs, bigger projects in buildings, I would say those are typically falling into a couple of buckets. Facade contracts, elevator contracts, boiler contracts, those will all, for the most part, be AIA contracts. Can we classify that as anything majorly capital? Major capital improvements, Mm -hmm. right? Generally speaking, even in, in smaller buildings, you're, you're never really looking at a job that's going to be less than uh, low on the six-figure side. Mm-hmm. So those are those are projects where you want to see AIA contracts. And in my opinion, you should always have a rider mm-hmm. because the AIA contract is it's a boilerplate contract that's put out. And AIA stands for the Architects Institute of America. Mm-hmm. And those contracts are used universally around the country for all sorts of construction jobs, giant high rises and office buildings in the city of New York to Austin, Texas and other places all around to $300,000 facade jobs or or $500,000 roof replacement in yeah. Brooklyn or Queens. So the rider or you know what we'll call a supplementary conditions will have additional protections for a co-op, mm-hmm. for an owner. So there are going to be some general things that we're going to make sure get put in there. So one is insurance. Make sure, and, and we'll make sure that not just the corporation is named as an additional insured, but also the managing agent, mm-hmm. super important, because the managing agent really 
they're running the show. Right. They're making all the decisions. With the, a, with the approval of the, the owner. A hundred percent. But if also, it, if it's not in the rider, typically the management contract will state that the ownership or the, let's say the building, the owner, will hold the, will cover the, uh, any costs for any lawsuits that arise out of the management as long as the manager is doing everything lawfully, right? So you're, you're covered in a way, but this is an extra step of protection. You're right. And the goal in, in all of this is for clarity up front. Mm -hmm. You don't want to have to go dig up a third, uh, uh, an agreement that's outside of the scope of what we were talking about mm -hmm. with regard to this particular so project. So we're, we're putting this project in a sandbox. Essentially, uh, yes, and we just want to make sure that uh, everything could be tr you could have three different sources of all this information in other places on the riders and on the contracts, but we want to put it all here and outline it effectively so that all parties in this transaction know exactly who's responsible for what, who's covered for, for what, and all of those other points. Yes, okay, and so this the rider or the supplementary conditions is going to have things like insurance, it's going to have things like warranties. How long is that? Is the work going to be warranted for? Change orders, we talked about change orders. So it, for the rest of the world, a change order is exactly what it sounds like. Mm -hmm. You have a, a certain scope of work in the contract. Let's say on, on a local Law 11 project, they've done a facade inspection and they say that we're going to have 300 square feet of lintel replacements at X price per square foot. Most cases, they're already doing the inspection so they know what the problems are and they base the price of the job on their previous inspection. Well, what happens now if they go to a different part of the building or they go to a part of the building where they didn't see a problem before and now you have a problem? Mm -hmm. And so now that problem is a little bit more difficult than just replacing the lintel. It's you have to, there, there's, there's some additional work that has to be done. And additional work means additional time and additional money. So those change orders can't be, a, they can't be put in or processed until the owner and the management company and the architect approves it. Right. Okay. Um, there's going to be additional contingencies. That will that are unique to this particular job. So sometimes, for example, the best example that I can I can give would be a uh, a boiler a, a boiler job that we we just did. So they were putting in a new boiler into a building, but before they could actually uh, before they could actually put in the new the new boilers the boiler room had asbestos. So the asbestos had to be remediated. It was a separate asbestos contract. And so all of this, you have, remember, you've got, in situations where you've got other contingencies and you've got other work that's being done, everything needs to move seamlessly. Mm -hmm. But how do you work seamlessly is A has to happen before B, B has to happen before C. But remember, the person who's drafting the contract for C the reality is they're probably not looking or thinking about A or B. Right. So that it becomes the attorney's job to understand the full scope of the project. I, I feel like in my time of being an attorney, I've become a lot more aware of construction issues that come up because you have to understand 
how the jobs work. And it would be the same for any type of contract. If you're a music attorney, you need to understand how the publishing works and and how you get your royalties and when you get paid. And it's the same thing here. And in in a in this in this context, if there's a contingency meaning there's something has to happen before you start your work. So in the local law eleven context, you have to get a sidewalk shed, which is scaffolding on the side of the building. Mm-hmm. And you got to get permits. Well, your timing for do, doing your job should take that into account. Right. Okay. And everyone should understand that and think about that. Again, have the conversation because if it's going to take you 45 days to get that, to, to get those permits before you can actually start work, and then the work is going to take another 120 days, you have to think about that for. Uh, for what that's going to mean from a price standpoint and how that can increase your costs mm-hmm. and also also help to light a fire under everybody's rear end so that they're not dilly-dallying at the outset and, so that you can get the contract signed because there's a couple of things down the line that have time, cost, and money issues. Right. And potentially liability issues, as we mentioned before, of playing out the the dastardly scenario of water and accidents and all that other kind of stuff. One of the riders, is it in a, well, I guess you could answer this. Is it in a format contract, the boilerplate contractor? Is it a rider that says if the contractor shall stop working on the project, this is the remedy for the building that they would hire somebody and they would take that total price that needed to be paid out to the second contractor off of the initial contract price or is that in the boilerplate, or is that something that we have to negotiate? Well, the boiler, the boilerplate, it, it's something that you generally negotiate separately. And the boilerplate is for all AIA contracts, and they just redid the AIA contracts in 2017. Mm-hmm. The old ones in 2007 had a whole load of general conditions. It was like it's like 200 pages of conditions that then you then have to reference to understand how this stuff plays out. The Broadest big picture perspective is that the architect is generally the arbiter. Mm-hmm. They're the initial arbiter of when you've got a problem. So there's a problem on the job. Who's the person you go to? The architect is the one who's going to look at these initial issues and make that decision. Right. If you've got a bigger problem where now you've got to kick a contractor out, as we mentioned before, you may be better off keeping that same contractor because the the price of the job can increase exponentially for someone to take over somebody's work. But who would be responsible for that extra cost? Would it be the contractor that walked away? Well, that's something that that even if you have it in a contract, that that will likely get played out in a litigation or mm-hmm. get played out and most of these contracts will have arbitration clauses mm-hmm. will get played out in some sort of settlement arbitration and it helps to put that into a rider to deal with right. it. But the reality is, is that the contractor is going to have a lot to lose and the owner is going to have a lot to lose and it's going to be very, it's going to get very expensive very quickly. So regardless of what you have in the contract, the party is going to go back and have to sit down with one another. And if that isn't a contract where the contractor would be responsible afterwards, then all of a sudden, it helps the owner. 
but he would you'd have to sue to enforce his remedies. Everybody loses. Everybody loses, right. So it's in our best interest as um, property owners to ensure that we do everything that we can to keep the relationship between the signed vendor moving forward to completion. Even if there are issues, just try to work through those. It's also one of the reasons, too. I, at the beginning, I, I mentioned what sets us apart is that we're transactional attorneys. Not all litigators, but there are some litigators out there well, actually, all litigators have a vested interest in the litigation because that's how they're making money. Mm-hmm. It's not to say that that litigators who are representing a co-op are going to do something with a bad intent just so that they can make money. That's crazy. But it's also not for, it's not unforeseeable that a litigator is going to take a different approach than a transactional attorney because they may be looking at things from an adversarial standpoint. Mm-hmm. And when you're looking at things from an adversarial standpoint it becomes potentially very costly to the co-op so under, or, or the condo or whatever the yeah. building is. So that's why it's really important from from the outset um, to have the mindset and understanding of, think about it if, you were, if this was your own shoes, okay? I use the example of your own house. You have a contractor where the job went bad, it's going to cost me... It's going to cost me another $50,000 to fix his work, yeah. or he can come back and, and, and finish out the job, and I can pay him less now and give him more at the end and work something out so that I don't have to sue him mm. and or pay someone else to finish that job. So I, I think that everyone really should think about things from the, from the cost perspective. If obviously things get so bad where you really don't want to work with them and they did something so egregious, then you've got to go back to your contract and right. see how you see how you can. Yeah, and there, are, them. there are times that the relationship has just gone so south and they where the contractor walked off the job. I mean, we're not talking about just the normal, Oh, I don't have the money to pay. And this should have been a conversation up front. And how can we work out a payment plan? This is the contractor isn't showing up. He's not doing the proper job. He's not got the proper amount of people on the, you know, that's also another thing dictating how many people are going to be working at any time on, mm-hmm. the, on the project. Because if we have, and I've run into this in, in the past, but if we have a project that's, you know, okay, we have two crews working, but we only have one showing up for a week solid. Now we're potentially a week behind because that second crew could have been, you know, making up that difference or what was agreed to in the contract. So that's something that's also going to push us off of um, timing and extra costs down the line that's going to be incurred by us as the man or as the owner. Um, like we said, with the extra bridge rentals, they're the costs that are not hitting the, the vendor because they're not abiding by the terms of their agreement. It's a, because they're not abiding by the terms of their agreement, it's leading to an extra cost for the owner. So really nailing down that um, issue in the contract is going to be important too. Definitely, and and that's why the conversations matter. I want to come back to another point on insurance, and we talked about the initial verification to make sure that the contractor has the right insurance. Well, let's say they have the wrong insurance, and now they've got to get additional coverage. That's going to throw off the price of mm-hmm. the whole job, right? Because they, they're not going to eat that cost, right? Right. They're yeah. going to say, "Well, we bid, we bid out the job." We bid out the job based on this insurance, and if I need to get ins- insurance that's going to cover me to go up to 10 stories, 
or have have an um, get rid of my exclusion for employer liability that's going to increase my cost by XYZ. And now all of a sudden the price of the job is different. Yeah. And again, time, money, hiccups. It's a lot of information to just have for one simple project, which is not really that simple. But I mean, there's so many pieces before you've even, you know, dug out that first piece of mortar. It's really coming to the table and it could be uh, if we're looking at 45 days of permits, we're also talking about maybe asbestos removal. Uh, this could be a six month project from the time that you get the bid to reviewing the contract, negotiating the contract, getting all the riders, getting the insurance, getting the permits, getting your asbestos taken care of. And now suddenly we're at the point where we can get everything with the shed and then the work in this local law 11 scenario. So this is, these could take significant amount of time. So these, these are definitely projects that you have to be on a good relation, you know, good standing with the contractor because there's a lot of balls in play even before you've started to hit the first nail. Yeah. Well, you mentioned asbestos. Asbestos is one of those things that you don't necessarily know until you go mm -hmm. up there and then you, you, you see what you have. Yeah. You've got to test it. And we actually write in, in our supplementary conditions, we've got provisions relating to asbestos that if they find asbestos, they have to let us know because you need licensed asbestos people to take it off. So the, the contractor right. who's doing the facade work on the outside, he may not be the asbestos guy. Correct. And we work usually, because I'm going through this now on a couple of projects, we work with the architect. Um, the architect in this case, if they're leading the project, will get us proposals for the inspection. They'll get us proposals for the uh, for the inspection and the testing and then for the removal. So we can work with the con with, with the architect on that just to get that rolling separately from the contractor, but we all have to be in communication. It's all communication. It's communication with the residents because everybody has to know what's going on. And they're going to be seeing shedding going up. They're going to see bridging and you know scaffolds going up and down, especially once the work starts. When you're doing the inspection, it's not so bad. And we actually work now with a lot of architects that they don't go... It depends on the size of the building, but they don't go up and down for a visual inspection on a scaffold rigging anymore. A lot of them have special licenses so they can hang individually off the building. So it's like when you see rappelling off of the mountain, they are specially licensed to do that in New York City. And there's not so many architects that are doing that, but the benefit of that, and especially if you're in a building that's over six stories, I mean, just to say... Just because you're a local law 11 building or you're under six stories doesn't mean that you're not subject to the same regulations. You're just not subject to the same inspection cycles. So if you have a building that's under six stories, you're required to still keep it safe. And if an architect walks by the building or comes to the building and sees a potentially unsafe condition, they have a, a legal obligation through their license to notify first the Department of Buildings and then the, then the building. So they're really giving the jump on any issues that come up. So these conversations, they're helpful, for especially for those taller buildings. But I've had three, four-story buildings that have sat with these you know, bridges out there for over a year while financing is in play because there were unsafe conditions noted. Um, I, I feel like I'm kind of getting off on a tangent. But I think that it's super important to have your architect that's going to be there just to kind of lead the process and make sure that we all have communication. Um, and there's so many different ways that we could, oh, I think what I was saying was on the larger buildings, when we had the scaffolding going up and down, it could be like $5,000 per inspection up and down. So you could be doing an up and down inspection. Then you move the scaffold over. Um, and it's another $5,000 depending on the size of the building. That could be a lot. And a few years ago, they actually expanded the, the inspection protocol so that more of the building had to be initially inspected. 
But now with these rigging license, if you drop off the building, you're literally just paying that amount, like $5,000 for the day. And they can bounce around wherever they need to go. We're just paying for the day, which is for middle to larger buildings. It's a much more cost effective and quicker process. So the question is, is whether or not that's any more dangerous and increases the risk that somebody is going to have an accident. I don't think so. Only I, I don't know the answer, yeah. but that's my initial. When you you mentioned that, it's my initial an initial thought is somebody on a harness, right? But off of yeah. the off of the roof of the building, hanging down like Spider Man, yeah, or Batman, I guess for that yeah. matter, is that any more likely to have be in an accident than someone who was up on a scaffold? Well, we haven't heard of any accidents yet, and it's been a few years. That's Knock good. On wood. Knock on wood. Um, they so the architect you have them doing the drop off of the building in the harness, but you also ha hire a secondary company that's licensed to oversee the rigging. So they're the ones that are providing the support for the architect. So there's a lot of measures in place so that they do it in a safe manner. I will say that only because I've done it in a few buildings and it's been pretty successful and it's, it's good to get the up close and personal, get all the photos you're done in one day. You have a lot of information. I think that it's, it's a much more um, palatable option for larger buildings that maybe don't have as much money because you could save fifteen to twenty thousand dollars in a single day just by not having to do those multiple riggings and drops with the with the scaffold that's going up and down. And it could instead of a two or three day process, it could be a one day process. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of upside. Hopefully, nobody drops. Hopefully, that's hopefully. the only downside. But we haven't seen it yet. Well, you know, when people ask me what do we what do we do and what are we doing on a daily basis, and or I also represent a lot of individual buyers and sellers of apartments, and so when we're looking at financials and looking at, at upcoming potential capital improvements that are going to cost shareholders in an assessment or an increase in maintenance, and we talk about local law eleven, and I always explain it. I remember a couple of years ago, I think it was somewhere on first or second Avenue, a whole chunk of a building fell off. Does that remember that it was, it was all over the news. Oh, I do. And I met that board. Yes. And they said in a few, well, I don't want to talk about that, but yes, I met that board and it was probably two years after that happened and they were still dealing with it. And it was, an, it was a big issue. Right. And, and I explained it like that. I also explain it because I, I have a co-op building right across from me and you can see the, the uneven patching work. Mm -hmm. So it's very easy to point out when someone's sitting in my conference room. But that's a, the, the example I give is you need that. So you need to do these projects that cost a lot of money to make sure that bricks don't fall off so that you don't have a horrible accident mm -hmm. like what you saw a couple of years ago. Um, a lot of times also people will remember it in New York, not from seeing the event on the news, but from having a subway problem <laughs> yeah. and then not being able to get the, to their job for 35 right. minutes because the bus was shut down or the yeah. subway was shut down or something like that. Yeah. Like the big blackout. I remember just all I remember about the big blackout a few years ago was just the intense heat and no air conditioning mm -hmm. and having to walk upstairs. <laughs> I was very upset about that, but we all got through it. Um, so I, uh, is there anything that we're missing? You know, I think that we've covered We've covered most of the big things. I just uh, yeah. uh, looked over my papers and see here. Um, I think those are those are those are the big picture items. The other things it's probably worth mentioning is apartment buildings. People live in apartment buildings, mm -hmm. so 
when we're talking about contracts, we're talking about big picture issues that deal with the job itself. So the timing, the scope, the costs, the price, how you come to that, all that. But the people who are living in these apartment buildings, they're living there. This is their regular life. Right. So there's all sorts of little stuff that comes up that will bother 87-year-old Mrs. Schwartz. Who's who home lives, all day. Who's home all day, who lives in apartment 6H. Yeah. Mrs. And Schwartz and her three cats are very upset with the uh, with the work outside. Right. So yeah. so when we come back to, to talking about riders and what we put in here, small things like the hours of work mm-hmm. that the contractors can work is actually a big job. It's actually a big deal. Why? It's because you've got all sorts of people who are going to, if they're going to complain about something, that's the first thing they're going to complain about. They're going right. to say, there's noise at, at, uh, seven o'clock in the morning right. and my kids are getting up and they're supposed to get up at seven thirty, yeah. and I haven't had my coffee yet. And da, 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 yeah. da. And th- that's why, you know, it's those little things that become thorns in the rears of the boards. And it's, it's the little things that can actually be almost or just as important as the big things in the contract, like the prices and the terms, because yeah. that's the stuff that you're going to hear about from residents right. and unit owners. And that brings us to a communication point with all the residents, letting them know what the standard work hours are. But also there are some projects where they will work on a Saturday if they get a variance to do so from the DOB, if it's going to allow the project to finish much sooner and I think that's project to project. There are some elevator installations that we do like six day weeks. There's some facade projects that we have special Saturday work. So just communicating with them. And I think the Saturday permits um, on the, let's say the exterior work don't really show up until it's requested, you know, a few days before that Saturday. So as soon as we get notice that that's going to take place, I think you could take a lot of the sting out of uh, those issues from Mr. Schwartz and the others that are home, especially everybody. Most people are home on a Saturday. I mean, unless you're working on, on a Saturday, I think most people in the morning are, are at home. So giving them a few days notice is going to be really helpful to alleviate a lot of those, you know, ill will feelings towards the ownership and the management and the vendors too, because they're, they're outside your window, you know, shut your blinds. Mm-hmm. you're going to be yelling at them through the window. Not that, that they're used to that because that's their job. But if we let them know that they're going to be there, we could at least, you know, help that situation. It's a good point. And, and, and remember someone who is getting woken up at before seven in the morning in their undergarments, that's going to cause a visceral reaction. Yeah. And so nothing good is going to come n- out nothing, of that nothing, moment. Nothing good is going to come out of that moment for, for, for either party. Yeah. So, so, the communication is definitely key. I mean, we, I mean, that was a constant theme throughout all of this, but all buildings can become very political. Yeah. So understanding how you can set people's expectations mm-hmm. in, the, in the right way, because no one likes surprises. People, especially in real estate, you know, you may like a surprise birthday party. <laughs> you don't like a surprise water leak. Right. You don't like a surprise uh, banging at seven in the morning. Yeah. And you don't like a surprise $100,000 cost overrun, mm. um, especially when it's going to be have to be paid for with an assessment to shareholders. Right. So the more that, that 
buildings can communicate that and set people's expectations. They say, okay, yeah, I know that we're going to have this construction for the next two months. That's fine. It's going to be in this, this part of the summer. We're going away anyway. No big deal. If it's going to be loud in a couple of days, I'm okay with that. Yeah. Versus no one ever told me about this. Why the heck does it sound, why is there so much, is it so loud outside my window? And why is somebody looking right into my kitchen when I'm yeah. making my coffee? <laughs> it changes things. Yeah. And not that the window or the people outside want to see everything either. <laughs> There's a lot of cases, that, please shut your blinds, you know? So if we, can, that, if we could get out that information. That's privacy, helpful. it's a two, it's a two way street. Yeah. So with payment requisitions, that's the last point. Um, so we've, we've talked about change orders, which come through and that's usually shepherded by the architect or by the project manager to say, okay, this is the initial quantity of X, Y, and Z. This is the change based on the contract, the unit price for this should be this, this is your cost overrun. And then when we get the payment requisitions, we're able to see, and normally they come in on a large scale job every you know few weeks or so, or when they hit a major milestone, I guess it really is gonna depend on what the contract calls for. Um, does a contract usually call for when payment requisitions are issued, or is that more of just, okay, we're 10% done, we're 30% done, we're 50% done? Well, the, it's a good point, smaller contracts, in, as you can imagine, a smaller contractor needs money quicker. So, and if you were, for example, doing a, a residential, you're doing a kitchen renovation, most contractors will take, let's say, a third up front, a third in the middle, and a third at the end. Um, on the smaller contracts, you'll see payment structures or timing for payments like that. On a bigger yeah. job, especially w one of these higher six-figure jobs, you're going to see progress payments. So they do X, Y, Z work. Right. Uh, the architect is going to, there's going to be a payment requisition. It's going to say, well, we did the uh, lintels on the northwest facade of the building. We did this, this, and this. This is how much it costs. So we're going to submit a requisition for payment. At the same time, on all of these jobs, there's going to be a certain amount held back, what's called retainage. The general standard is around 10% mm -hmm. uh, from each requisition to make sure that at the end, there's money left over so that the contractor finishes out the job. Right. We have that punch list of items at the end. Let's walk through all these items. Once those are all closed off and we've got nothing that's left to be done, that's when we give out the 10%. And then that's when we close out the job. And we, oh, one more point, because I think things pop into my head. The waiver of, uh, of lien, that's really important. Anytime that we do a progress payment, having the contractor sign that he's waiving he's he's received the money for this particular amount on this particular day and he's releasing the building of any sort of lien on that amount going forward right that's also an important point 100% and that's that's actually a big part of of our riders that we put in on any contract is to make sure that the contractors and are getting lien waivers not just from them but from all the subs and Eventually, where you see this stuff happen, when I say stuff, meaning liens posted on jobs, the bigger the job, the more likely you're going to have subs and people not getting paid on a timely basis. So they're constructing city field and you've got guys who are putting in the banisters in the, in, in the aisles and the stands. They're waiting some time before they get paid. Right. And so... so the likelihood on a bigger job that you're going to have a sub who files who files a lien is is more likely. But yes, technically, they're supposed to get lien waivers uh, on all jobs. When you've got these major high rise jobs in the city and you've got construction loan agreements, right. uh, where 
Chase or Bank of America or someone else is making a $100 million construction loan, you have construction monitors in addition to architects on these jobs mm -hmm. who are going out, they're getting paid by the bank, and they are doing the work to inspect that the work is done. There, there, there are drawdowns and title companies getting the lien waivers before before money is, is paid. And that money gets paid typically to the general contractor, and then the general contractor filters it out to pay right. the subs. That's where you'll you'll have problems. In a normal contract, should we have it listed out, all the subcontractors, are they covered by the insurance of the contractor, or do we need copies of both the contractor and the subcontractor's insurance? And also, should we, before we get the payment requisition filtered out and paid, should we then also require proof of all lien waivers from all subcontractors? Generally, the answer is yes. I mean, the architect is going to cover that. Um, you know, at the same time, the general contact contractor's insurance should cover the, the should cover the subs, and so it's going to be more of a, a question for the for the GC to make sure that his subs are covered. But the owner is going to look to first to the to the GC's insurance. But in a perfect world, in you're you're seeing the diligence from the top all the way down to the bottom. Mm -hmm. Uh, the practical answer for the owner is that you got the insurance of the GC. Is that's whose insurance that you are relying on. Okay. So our relationship is with the GC and their insurance should anything go south. Yes. Okay. All right. I think we covered everything. Okay. We got an hour of solid information. That hour went quick. It did. Hopefully it went quick for everybody it, listening. It went, it went quick. It was a lot of fun. So we got to do it again. <laughs> we will do it again. I have other topics that I want to talk to you offline about. Um, so Justin Weiser from William Slutsky PC. And now you guys are in Forest Hills on Queens Boulevard. Right. We keep a satellite office in, in Manhattan. That satellite on Fifth office. Avenue. Yeah. It's really, it's meant for anyone who thinks they need a passport to come to Queens, <laughs> uh, which is surprising, but it exists. Uh, notwithstanding that, um, it's actually a lot easier to commute to Queens, living yeah. in Long Island, yeah. than it is to Manhattan every day. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, our office is in Queens, and most of the buildings that we represent are in, they're in Queens, they're in Brooklyn. We've got a couple in, in Manhattan and yeah. in the Bronx. Uh, but, um, you know, we really specialize in, you know, in representing buildings in the outer boroughs. And, um, That's great. You know, but th the, work is, the work is the same yeah. wherever Absolutely. you go. It's, it's, it's these same issues. All the issues we talked about today... They can they come up whether your building is out in Suffolk County or if it's in Kings County or in Manhattan. Yeah, yeah. that's great. And if people want to call you, they could do it at 718-263-9292. And your email is justin at wslawny.com. And I'm also going to put all of your information in the description of the um, podcast. And so whenever somebody goes into the podcast, they'll see it. If you want to, again, my name is Mark Levine, the host of the NYC Real Estate Podcast. If you want to email us at nycrealestatepodcast at gmail.com. Again, it's nycrealestatepodcast at gmail.com. And we launch a new episode typically every Thursday morning. So check out, subscribe. Hopefully you can give it five stars and share it. And uh, Justin, I want to thank you for coming in. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. Definitely appreciate it. Look forward <laughs> to doing it again. No problem. Take care. Take care.